So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like getting to listen to episodes a whole week in advance. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Last time I discussed Vo losing it. Yes, absolutely Vo having a fall from grace by letting someone else fall from the edge of a collapsing tower. In this tale, which we'll be looking at the outlining of, we will see Vo at the bottom of that fall. The bottom of that barrel. No, wait, it's not a barrel. It's the gibbet. Yes, I actually have the title up front for a change. If this is your first episode, or you just feel a little bit lost continuity-wise, don't worry, please keep on listening, or go back to episode number one and listen all the way through. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> but yes, despite the fact that this story is at the end of the third quarter of the novel, essentially the 75% point of progress, it was the very first story, after I suppose the one that kicked off this whole project, that I outlined, or thought I had fully outlined, it turned out I had a lot more work to do, which we'll get into today. We'll also get into the difficulties of keeping something interesting in what is essentially a bottle episode, which is to say a character being trapped in a single location, in fact, a single location more or less the size of a phone booth <laughs> for the entire story, but somehow keeping it dramatic. The difficulties of knowing you want to evoke a certain author's manners and philosophy, but also wanting to make sure the story is your own, and among other things, it's not just these three delicious hooks I'm laying out for you here, we will be looking at knowing when there's enough there, there. And what does that even mean? Alright, let's go spend some time with Vo in The Gibbet. Looking back through my denim notebook, I see some words I wrote on May 23rd, 2020. Ah, here they are. So our imagination keeps being drawn back to this story. Perhaps it'll be the first one we write. A joy of this project is I really don't have to write it in sequence, except maybe the last third. Back to the present. Ha! Oliver! Oliver of May 23rd, 2020! You rube! You clown! You fool! Little did you know how this project would evolve over the next two years and a little extra. Ah, but let's go easy on the guy, folks, not just because I find myself strangely sympathetic to him. At this point, I had probably outlined in my life, oh, I don't know, 10 short stories? I mostly worked at the novel and uh, TV hour and feature length level, and I guess, you know, a decent amount of short films, but that's not really the same, I would argue. One really nice side effect of this project has been it's kind of a boot camp for outlining, and for outlining short stories in particular, plus, you know, that novella-length tale I've discussed. So, yeah, let's see what I thought was necessary back in May 23rd, 2020, and then talk about why I 
came back to it a couple years later and was like, no, this is not enough. I need more. <laughs> See, right off the bat, I knew even at this point that this story was going to be a little unusual in the constellation arrangement, whatever, of all the tales of the novel. The gibbet is at the very end of the middle of the book, the second act, which itself has kind of two halves, right? The first half being the sort of Fritz Leiber, Fafran Grey Mouser, you know, a couple of fantasy thieves having a rollicking, swashbuckling good times tales, followed by my sort of, as I keep jokingly referring to it with friends, Vonan stories, where Conan, <laughs> look what I just said, where Vo is kind of, you know, me having a bit of fun with the Conan, sort of primarily as warlord, leader of men kind of mode of Conan. Uh, sort of darker stories, but still with some kind of life-affirming upbeat philosophy underneath, which, by the way, is something I'm going to get into a little later in this very episode. I knew that by the end of those tales, I wanted Vo to be in a terrible place that would launch off into the final quarter of the novel, where she is a largely unwilling servant of a greater supernatural entity who is sending her all across time and space to perform tasks she rarely understands. Well, the greater purpose of them anyway. I also knew that I really loved the often reproduced in a variety of places, including the big Conan movie with Schwarzenegger there, the often reproduced and riffed on a moment from the story A Witch Shall Be Born, wherein Conan is crucified on a big old X shape and uh, has to survive there for a while before finally managing to free himself. I'm also, in a sense, riffing on not one of Howard's stories, but its kind of placement in his life. See, the very last story that Robert E. Howard wrote of Conan was Red Nails. There's really nothing within the tale that has any bearing on my story here, the gibbet, but I thought it was noteworthy that it was the final Conan story, and this is the final Vonan story, if you will. Also, though I would go on to, I think, abandon this, I say I think, because there's still time to change my mind, I had considered Vo walking right up to the edge of suicide as a way of escaping her predicament, which would have some overlap with Howard, who famously killed himself. And I was even thinking about invoking a line or two from his suicide note, although one wonders how tasteful that would have been. That too has fallen to the wayside. So yes, these were the influences I had in mind going into this. Right then, where did I start? Well, I thought about how this is essentially a kind of bottle episode, and I thought, what usually happens in these kinds of stories where the protagonist is stuck in the same space for a while, fearing that they are going to die this time for sure? I just rattled off a bullet point list. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, you have to get flashbacks. How did they get here? What about this and that and the other thing that they regret and so on? Hallucinations, thirst and hunger are a big part of it eating some vermin while starving. Oh my goodness, can you believe they ate bugs or a rat or whatever? Uh, Conan famously bit into the neck of, I believe, a vulture <laughs> that got too close, which, man, I wish that hadn't already been done because I would have loved to have put that in this story. Loved ones visit to sob at them or whatever, and enemy visits to taunt them. You know, regrets are, you know, mulled over. Perhaps a friend visits to promise aid with escape or, worse yet, to apologize for not being able to help. I thought here, perhaps, of Tyrion in Game of Thrones trying to get his mercenary buddy there, Bronn, to defend him in trial by combat against the mountain, and how at the end Bronn was like, I like you, just like me more. You might have the protagonist ruminate while staring at the surrounding landscape, straining to escape, you know, finding their bonds, trying to figure out a loose part, you know, enduring terrible weather if it's outdoors and not like deep in a castle's dungeon. 
surviving being freed really roughly, <laughs> which is what happens in which she'll be born with Conan. And a classic one, you know, killing an enemy who gets too close. Oh, and pondering a suicide, as I mentioned. This was my bullet point list of just like beats, moments, scenes, stuff that happens in these stories for me to consider. Trying to kind of figure out what is the palette that I can play with here and laying all that in front of myself. Now, in a witch shall be born, Conan is very roughly freed by enemies of his enemy. I kept imagining a supernatural patron, a la Elric, uh, the creation of Michael Moorcock, an author whose name is probably going to come up quite a bit more as we progress into the last quarter of the novel's outlining, making this kind of a hinge between, yeah, the middle and the last acts of the novel. So I'm not doing the enemy of my enemy thing, which is just as well, because that would require a lot of preceding setup, while the patron thing does not necessarily. And then I just moved on. <laughs> I did not expand upon those thoughts in this early outlining. I kept doing more inventory type stuff. So I was like, well, you know, if I go back to my big book of literary theory and criticism techniques, what of those techniques might come in handy in a story like this? You know, I considered incantation, which, you know, feels pretty straightforward to me, but essentially, yeah, like a big old literary expulsion of magic-y words and whatnot that could perhaps summon the patron or, you know, say, I will serve you, please free me. <laughs> there is psychomachi, which is a $10 word for saying when someone has an angel on their shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. Maybe Vo would be having something like that. I also considered a technique that ultimately I chose not to use, but maybe in the last quarter we'll see here. It's called an epic question, not to be confused with epic mealtime or any of the other abuses of <laughs> the word epic. And in short, it's a device in epic scale, you know, poetry by which the poet invokes the aid of a muse, patron, or superior power to explain what has happened. You know, Milton does quite a bit of this in Paradise Lost. Essentially, you have, you know, a, a big devil, demon, god, whatever, turn to the camera and be like, well, 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 <laughs> answer me this about what man is made of, or whatever. <laughs> and we get into all that kind of stuff. I think it's pretty fun. I don't know that it fits here necessarily, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Finally, I considered hubris and nemesis. Now, hubris is, I think, the one we're all a little more familiar with, just because it tends to be used as kind of a shorthand for someone thinking they can do something amazing, ignoring warnings, and then, oh dear, something terrible happened to them. And I guess that is basically what it is. The definition from my big old book here is, you know, this shortcoming, ellipses, I'm going to skip a bit, uh, is the, you know where you have a Greek tragic hero, uh, they are led to ignore the warnings of the gods and to transgress their laws and commands. Eventually, Hubris brings about their downfall. And Nemesis. Ah, Nemesis is kind of, in a way, the other side of Hubris, or a part of Hubris. It connects. Anywho, book says, what's Nemesis? A personification of the gods' resentment and anger at man's insolence, Hubris towards themselves. How dare you ignore me? Here's some Nemesis. Ha ha, lightning bolt or whatever. <laughs> But in the end, I haven't written into any of the stories for this quarter that Vo is ignoring the warnings of anybody in following the path of her own sort of increasing personal gratification, just satisfying her own wants and needs and desires and so on on the path to winding up here. And honestly, I'm okay with that. I rather prefer that Vo made her own bed without the interference or whatever, the nemesis coming down upon her of some greater entity. To me, the greater entity is going to be an opportunist sneaking in when she's at her lowest after she's already put herself in that position. I like that a little better, I think. From this list of critical theory terms, uh, you know, etc., I decided to just quickly rattle off some reference texts. I figured, you know, which is born by Howard, obviously. 
Paradise Lost, perhaps, for that epic question thing. Elric of Menimbini, who frequently invokes patrons to help him out in his adventures, although it often comes at a terrible cost and freaks out his friends. And even good old Faust, yeah, the whole psychomachy, you know, angel devil on the shoulder thing. Thought I might as well go back to one of the originals, right? After this, I just did some general brainstorming. I'm not going to read all of it, why would I? But there's two points in particular that you may find of interest, one of which is just gross. <laughs> it's some historical thing which I regret not writing down the point of reference for, but basically I was thinking there could be a it could be worse, you know, moment, and also getting across that the whole thing of it could be worse is really cold comfort. Perhaps Vogue could remember a gibbeting where someone had their hands and feet cut off, then were gibbeted alive, essentially, while sewn into a freshly killed cow skin with the horns at ear level to crush their head gradually as the skin dries out. Like so many terrible tortures, you betcha that has happened in history. I just unfortunately did not write down where I read this. By the way, it occurs to me that some people might not be familiar <laughs> with the gibbet. And sounds fun, doesn't it? Yeah, I've seen this used in a couple of very similar ways, essentially referring to a big pole with an arm coming out the side from which a dead criminal can be hung. Either hung like a hanging, just boom, you know, killed them off on the spot there, or they've been killed in some other terrible way they could then later be hung up on there as a warning to all. I'm most familiar with a certain medieval manifestation of it though, and that's the one I'm thinking of here, where you have kind of like an iron bar rounded cage cylinder type situation with a flat bottom where a criminal gets stuffed in it alive and they're like, have fun starving to death and then rotting, you know, in this gibbet, which invariably is put beside the road, sometimes on its own, sometimes one of many, so that anybody traveling through the kingdom can be like, oh, that's what happens if I misbehave. Guess I better behave. Ha 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 ha. So yes, bad enough if you're left in a cage to starve to death. Imagine being sewn in that cow's skin <laughs> to have your head slowly be crushed, etc. Pretty gross. Not very conducive for my story. The other piece of brainstorming I'll share with you, because it comes back later, was I thought, what if Vo manages to escape only for, let's say, some kind of royalist carpenter to happen by and use fresh nails to re-secure her back into the gibbet? Hmm. So alright, you know, I've given you a couple of things that I thought would become standard issue, like me, you know, for my outlines, like me going through the literary theory and critical terms book and seeing what ones I want to use in the story as well as making a list of reference texts. Both of those have fallen almost entirely to the wayside, and honestly, I'm okay with that. The reference things is not entirely necessary, especially because it tends to be maybe one text, if that. And also, the critical theory terms, etc. It's fun to have tools, but it's more like I think I should be going in to write the first drafts of these stories, and maybe then kind of going, okay, well, I wanted to pull off X, Y, Z, what could be some interesting tools for that, and then maybe go back to my shortlist that I made for myself right near the start of this, rather than go through the tools and be like, how can I use these? How can I use a bandsaw? I didn't want to cut anything, but I've got a bandsaw I should use. Do you know what I mean? You can see how like the tail kind of leads the dog, if I'm not careful with that. And then, after I did a bit of brainstorming, I wrapped up this first attempt at the outline with a couple of things that have survived moving forward through all the other outlines that I've done. I made a list of the other things than conflict from Ursula K. Le Guin's Steering the Craft book, relating, finding, losing, burying, discovering, parting, and changing, and riffed on those and was like, what could be in the story or what is in the story that would fit any of those? Followed by 
me getting out my red pen and doing what I call my red pen page, where I just kind of do a final backend review of like, what are the elements of this story? What are the base things? You know, perspective, limited third person, tense, past, point of view, though, trajectory. Well, it starts here and it gets there and hopefully I can, you know, imply the end in the beginning, perhaps. You know, what's the focus? What's the theme? All this kind of stuff that I would go on to cover in every outline I did after this. And then I thought I was done. And I also decided that even if I wasn't necessarily going to write every story in linear order, I probably should outline them in linear order in case, you know, even with low continuity to no continuity going between all the tales, I might do something in an early story that would affect my decisions in writing a later story, outlining a later story. So yeah, yeah. I then proceeded to do everything in linear fashion as I've been relating it to you in this very podcast. Boom! Leap forward, time travel, oh god, oh geez, oh man, oh boy, oh boy, and we are in July 30th, 2022. We're in a whole new notebook, and nowhere near the start of said notebook. Oh no, much has been outlined <laughs> since the gibbet was theoretically finished outlining. While I had realized that my outlines had gotten a little too complex, perhaps, when I was doing some of the latter Liber-inspired tales from the second quarter of the novel, I knew that even now I still wanted to do a lot more of my outlines than I had done in that original first crack at the gibbet. So, as I sat down on that very fateful day, I wrote literally the word okay <laughs> at the top of a page. I like to do that. We have a five-page quote-unquote complete outline in the denim notebook, but I wouldn't say we have a complete outline. So, what's missing? A big item is an order of events. I really hadn't written down what order anything would happen in the story, other than just sort of knowing that Vo will be whisked off somehow or another at the very end by the supernatural patron. I hadn't chosen precisely what the opening and closing images might be if I wanted to have you know a pair that mirrored each other. I am very fond of that technique, so hey, why not? I didn't really have a thematic statement. I didn't have a guiding idea. I didn't have anything I was actually explicitly trying to say with the story. I just knew I kind of wanted to tell a kind of story that riffed off of a classic moment from a Conan story. Yeah, not enough, Oliver, not enough. I had some stuff scribbled in the brainstorming that I kind of glossed over there. Something about maybe living only for beginnings, guarantees, and unsatisfying ending, like Vo is some kind of Don Draper of the sword and sorcery scene. But yeah, I felt with confidence this was not enough. This was not right. This was not something I felt strongly about enough to wrap a story around it. At this point, it was also very important for me to decide what, if any, continuity nods I might indulge in. You know, there's sort of the inference, since the patron, as I had decided at this point, would not be visible, just like a voice that Vo hears, there would be an inference that this is the same mental invader as at the end of the very first act uh, in the story called Disgrace the Stone. But I think it's best to leave that ambiguous. Having people show up that know Vo, but are news to the reader, could be very fun as well as hint at future backfill stories, which is to say tales I'll tell after the novel comes out, but be like, yeah, this takes place between these stories and these stories. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I can sort of hint at future possible backfill tales that I may write better, I think, than having actual characters that you've already met in previous stories show up again and again, because 
That's continuity that would require you had read other stories, which is something I'm trying as hard as possible to avoid until I get to the very final tale of the novel, where it's kind of unavoidable. So yeah, in the meanwhile, whether or not I write those backfill stories, having people show up that Vo knows, but the reader doesn't, could also just be kind of fun as a way of inflaming the reader's imagination in a pretty cool way. And then I realized I hadn't done something which I hadn't even thought about when I was writing The Gibbet, but since then I had played around with in at least one or two other stories, which was drawing a map of Vo and the readers, or maybe just the readers, emotional journey. It seemed wise for this story where, barring flashbacks, which ultimately I decided against, but at this point I wasn't sure, Vo will be stuck in very close to a cage for the whole bloody thing. <laughs> so yeah, maybe like I did in uh, Carry Me From Coltoon, which you can listen to that outline in a previous episode, yeah, I, uh, I thought I would try mapping an emotional journey or at least having a bit more thoughtfulness about that side of things. So okay, those are the things I felt were missing that I needed to figure out in order to actually properly complete this outline. I also decided to go back over all the pages of stray notes, just thoughts, ideas, whatever, that I put in my notebooks that I had had since that original outline in case there were any thoughts for this story, and there were a few actually that were quite handy. But I just wove those into the order of events, so I'll save that for when we get there. What I did after this, though, was look at, okay, so, like, journeys? <laughs> Not just the emotional one, but, like, what are the arcs? What are the little, you know, we start here, we get there in the middle, and then roughly we're there at the ends that we're trying to figure out here. And I thought, well, for starters, there's Vo herself, right? I need her to be in a different place in her head by the end of this. Otherwise, she would never be the kind of person who would say, okay, fine <laughs> to some sort of powerful entity that's like, hey, do you want to serve me for an undetermined amount of time doing things I'm not even going to tell you about? You just got to do them in exchange for being freed from this cage and not dying? Yeah. See, she starts off a leader, but also kind of a loner, right? Leader of people, but letting no one close to herself. Classic archetype because of, in part, of course, the thing that happened with her friend Tiravan. Check that out in Carry Me From Coltoon. Again, to, she goes from that, so yeah, leader and loner, to a servant who is never alone, which I think is quite different, don't you think? It's really just flipping things 180 degrees. A servant who is never alone because her boss, her patron is, as far as she knows, always watching her, always in her head. But really, that's mostly circumstance. So what is Vo's actual, like, arc in this story? What is the arc, not of what's happening to her, but who she is? And then I remembered, oh yeah, <laughs> this kind of arc, roughly, that I've set for the whole novel. This is going to be a turning point for that. What arc for the whole novel am I talking about? Well, we're coming back to something that I figured out very early in the Denim Notebook, although after that early attempt at outlining the gibbet, which was something from Ursula K. Le Guin's writings. A little too much to get into all the nitty-gritty here, but in a nutshell, kind of three ways of being, with one suggested as the only way things actually are, and the other two being ways that people would like them to be and frequently delude themselves into thinking that things could be. So the first one that I have played with in the novel all over the first quarter, where Vo is trying to be a hero, is living for resolution, essentially chasing the high of gloriously resolving something, ending it, making it okay. Gosh darn it, which is what heroes tend to do, right? They come into places, they deal with stuff, and then that's it, baby, end of story. Wasn't that great? It feels very much the way people tend to think when they're like 19 to mid-20s. I mean, people can think that way their whole lives, but to myself, it felt like a very young person way of looking at the world, and so I gave that to Vo in the first quarter when she's at her youngest for the novel. Then after that, 
you have the idea of essentially stasis, a kind of perfected self. Like, you know, you might not think you're perfect, but you're pretty down with how you are and you really like how your life is. And that was certainly for me what life was like in the back end of my 20s. I really liked partying and having fun with friends and dating around. And sure, I could always have more of my life, but that felt pretty good, to be honest. And that's basically where Vo has been. And Vo is at this point probably 28, 29, maybe even just barely turned 30. In the second quarter of the novel, when she's having her thievey fun time adventures with her best friend Tiravam, we see the stasis thing manifesting as like kind of a fun cycle booming and busting through getting you know wealthy off of the things they steal, blowing it on liquor and whatever the heck else, and then going back out to thieve again, having a good old party, the two buddies. And it was the disruption of this that ultimately led to Vo falling out with Tiravam and going off to just be all about herself. And having a boom and bust cycle essentially of raising an army or a bunch of bandits at a minimum, raiding the hell out of people, having fun living for life and wine and flesh and booze and so on. And then, oh geez, you know, the army gets pulled out from under her and she has to start all over again. Round and round it's gone until it's landed her here in the gibbet. I can't stress enough, it's not the booze and flesh or even the bloodletting, although I'm not into bloodletting, <laughs> that I'm coming down on by sticking Vo in a cage at the end of this sequence of her life. It's living only for yourself. It's not really caring about others. And of course, this manifests most darkly at the end of the previous tale I told you about. Vo loses it, where Vo lets somebody fall to their death so she can grab treasure. Oh boy. The idea is to guide Vo until eventually she finds herself in a place of, you know, a richer kind of living where you just understand that everything's a continuing process and nothing really ends. Arguably, even when you die, regardless of how you feel about the afterlife, the world keeps going and your bones maybe provide bone meal to help plants grow. Yes, that was some Minecraft logic there, but you get the idea. <laughs> I don't see her having achieved that by the end of a stay in the gibbet. That feels way too fast and then also doesn't really leave her much room to do anything in the last quarter of the book. But I would like to at least get her to the very first step of being on that way to that philosophy by the end of the story. So, okay, that's another sort of arc journey deal we're having here. It was around here I also found myself wondering, this supernatural patron, which I'm intentionally leaving super vague, you know, is it a god, is it a demon? You know, you're not even seeing it, right? And maybe we'll see it later. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> but I think for the story, it's probably best as a disembodied voice in Vo's head. Yeah, why does this patron, as I'm just going to refer to it, care? If Vo sees things as a continuing process, do they care? Does it make her a better tool? Something to think about. I wasn't sure if that I needed to figure that out for this story, and I ultimately decided no. <laughs> but it's good I got the question down for later. And so I began to think about the emotional journey. And I started with what felt like the thing I really had to think about up front, which is the reader knows we aren't killing Vo. To the point that even opening with a fun misdirect, which I ultimately think I'm going to do, a fun misdirect about another large warrior woman gasping their last in the gibbet across from Vo. <laughs> Might even be a waste of word count. Uh, I see myself worrying here in my notes, but then I change my mind. You know, she's stuck in a cage, Vo is. So really, it's about the intrigue of how'd she wind up here, and most importantly, how will she get out? So... Is the emotional journey just going to be a ratcheting up of tension? Do we want the reader to feel Vo's gotten what she deserves and gradually grow more concerned for her? Maybe even feel sorry for her despite the terrible thing you've just watched her do at the end of the last story. In the end, 
We're punishing, though, with cosmic indentured servitude, after all. How do we want the reader to feel about that? I guess intrigued, really, because I want them to feel excited to go forward and read the stories that <laughs> wrap up the book, pulled forward into that final quarter. At this point, I was reminded of an ending that I've been very impressed by to the point that I'm still thinking about it over a year later after reading the book, year and a half, I think, which is the end of the first Xenogenesis book by Octavia Butler, where in super mega short, you have the climax to the story of the novel itself, then a kind of cliffhanger surprise immediately presents itself, followed by a call to action and stepping across a threshold into the next big adventure. Oh ho, read the next book, folks. That was a really good execution of that move in that particular book, and I'm thinking back on it as maybe something I should have in the back of my mind while I write this story, even though it's not the end of the novel, it's the end of a big chunk of the novel, and I want it to achieve a similar effect. Now, when I've finished outlining this thing, I don't know if I succeeded in pulling something like that off, or maybe I'm just being too hard on myself. I'll let you be the judge. Unlike Carry Me from Coltoom, I had a harder time seeing the shape of this story earlier in working on it, and so the emotional journey was very hard. I couldn't think of the order of what I wanted the reader to feel, only things I wanted the reader to feel, and there were four of them. First up, intrigue. This is definitely a story. I mean, you always want the reader to be intrigued. You always want them to be interested. But some stories are more about answering a big question than others. And this story invites some pretty obvious questions like, how will Vo get out of this? <laughs> what exactly is the supernatural element creeping in here, this patron? What do they want? Why do they want her? Uh, you know. So intrigue, number one. Second, I literally wrote, <laughs> I think this is an emotion, right? I wrote, Ah, come on! <laughs> you know when you're watching a story and you just are so invested in something happening and then they snatch it away or it happens and then gets immediately undone. And I felt like, yeah, that's going to happen in here because I definitely want to have Vo escape only to be very quickly stuffed back in the cell. <laughs> so there's an emotion, intrigue, and ah, come on. Followed by number three, which is Vo deserves this, right? You know, I... I do stress that the stories in this book can be read individually, and so I do want to have some mention of what got Vo stuck in this cage, but I don't want to mention anything she actually did specifically in another story, including the very back end of that last one. Just goes against the ethos of the whole book. So, yeah. Yeah. But I'm hoping that people will read things in order and thus be rewarded and feel certain things even more strongly than if they had read stuff willy-nilly at random. And so, yeah. Vo deserves this, right? is definitely a feeling I want to have, a question I want to be getting asked, really, in the mind of the reader. And finally, I made fun of myself with number four here, which is, ooh, deep. <laughs> which is me mocking myself. But at the end of the day, you know, I have been thinking I really want to have some kind of like Robert E. Howard type philosophy, philosophizing, really, brought up in one of these particular stories. I want to have Vo give kind of a little monologue about the meaning of life and that kind of thing. For an example of what I mean, here's what feels to me like the quintessential example. It is a little speech given by Conan the Barbarian himself in the story Queen of the Black Coast, when asked by someone else, well, what do you believe? After a bunch of debate about the gods and the afterlife and dreams and reality and that kind of thing. He shrugged his shoulders. I have known many gods. He who denies them is as blind as he who trusts them too deeply. I seek not beyond death. 
It may be the blackness averred by the Nemedian skeptics, or Krom's realm of ice and cloud, or the snowy plains and vaulted halls of the Nordheimer's Valhalla. I know not, nor do I care. Let me live deep while I live. Let me know the rich juices of red meat and stinging wine on my palate, the hot embrace of white arms, the mad exultations of battle when the blue blades flame in crimson, and I am content. Let teachers and priests and philosophers brood over questions of reality and illusion. I know this. If life is illusion, then I am no less an illusion, and being thus, the illusion is real to me. I live, I burn with life, I love, I slay, and am content. Conan does not have time for your what if life is an illusion stuff. <laughs> Do not ask Conan if you are all in the matrix. Yeah. Anyway, so that gets across kind of the vibe, I hope. And I also, <laughs> I ran into something funny here where past Oliver had written literally something to the effect of deploy Howardian philosophy as if like, well, just, just stick it in there somewhere, <laughs> which is not helpful for present Oliver. And I was looking at this on a Sunday morning, feeling very kind of like, you know, brain no worky. And I thought, what, is, what does this mean exactly? <laughs> so just for fun, I kind of threw it to, you know, the Whetstone Tavern Discord. I was like, what do you guys think this means? And there were some very good answers. Reading all of them would be too much. I will read past guest of the show, Matt John's response, which I rather liked. His response was this. Philosophy? I'm unsure, but I can tell you what wisdom I've taken from the Conan story specifically. There's no point worrying about the gods or fate or notions of religion. You're here. That's what you've got, whether it was given to you or not. No person should be someone else's beast of burden. What we consider civilized is often the product of some kind of corruption. Stand up for yourself and stand up for your friends. Don't let others push your people around. Drink all the wine, eat all the meat, enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. The written or spoken word can and will often subvert acts of brawn. There's a whole world out there. Go see it. Be strong of mind and principles, and, if you can help it, strong of body too. And that's it. I just thought, you know, it was kind of a neat bunch of beliefs, and I was like kind of thinking, okay, which one of these, you know, overlaps with Vogue? Because this is where we get to something I mentioned in the old teasers there. We gotta be wary of just copy pasting some of the guy's work. Like if you just wanna really experience some of the guy's work, go read it. You know, don't necessarily just write a story where you're perfectly or trying to, let's be real, you're not you're never gonna be perfect, but you're gonna try to perfectly replicate it. So I've gotta have a think. What would be a philosophical outburst along the lines of this, but expressing those beliefs as they are at X point in this whole novel, at the point in this story. So yeah. Maybe that's what I mean by deploy how Howardian philosophy, really. Deploy my character's philosophy, but keep in mind the way that Howard did it through his character of Conan. So yes, I want to make people feel the way I felt when I first read that quote from Queen of the Black Coast and other moments like it in Conan's stories. <laughs> Does this all add up to an emotional journey? Well, it adds up to a list of emotions I hope to hit while taking the journey through this story. Good enough, let's move on. Thematic statement. I found this pretty quickly, actually, thankfully because of the stuff I've been telling you about so far. To do with resolution and perfect stasis and continuing process, I just thought, well, Vo starts this feeling that she's in a perfectly good place and nothing needs to change. And it's kind of a perfection for her that she's only seeking to refine, really, greater and greater appetites for blood and treasure and so forth. And I thought, well, perfectionism is a prison. If you're perfect, you can only really go down from there. It's not great. And then I thought, well, perfection, real or imagined, is a prison from which only change 
will set you free. Yes, yes, I liked this. It suggests, you know, sort of thematic and emotional elements to hit in the storytelling, and it definitely feels like a theme that I can mess with and a statement that I agree with. Thematic statement, nailed it, yeah! <laughs> so okay, by this point I'm getting very close to being able to just rattle through the order of events. What is the story? What happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit left. Who is visiting her? And now I have the thematic statement, I can think, okay, how can each of the people who visit Vo be a way to explore different angles on my thematic statement? This is where something like a theme or thematic statement can come in handy, of course. I decided let's keep an easy structure. Let's have three people come visit her. Let's have, I like the idea of the past lover. I like the idea of an old enemy, though not the one who captured Vo. That's important. And I really like the idea of that carpenter, but then I thought, you know, who puts her back in the cage after she escapes somehow. But then I thought, well, why not make that more interesting? Why not make that a blacksmith? Why not make that a woman blacksmith like Vo's mom was. Hmm, could be something neat there. Okay, so in order of their appearance, why don't we have a past lover, and their thing is exploring how perfection is in the eye of the beholder. You know, we could have the lover be like, well, you've changed, and Bo's like, no, how you see me changed, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, cool, let's try that. Perfection is in the eye of the beholder through a past lover. Number two, quote-unquote mom blacksmith, you know, part of perfectionism is holding others to our impossible ideals. Who hasn't met a parent that does that to their kid? And even though this isn't literally Vo's mom, I like the idea of this character being a gateway to exploring that. Cool. Third and final one. Old enemy, not the one who captured Vo. Vo and this enemy perhaps were spared a destructive cycle that was perfect to them as it suited their needs by this other party, this king sneaking in to bust up Vo's situation, capturing her, sticking her in the gibbet. And then I thought, it's this enemy, perhaps, who could come back to serve a very important role at the very end of the tale, even after their initial visit. And then, yeah, I think I've got it. You know, I'm going to alternate between the three visitors and the escalating arc of the patron trying to first make Vo aware that the patron even exists and is not like a hallucination, and then commence with the hard sell of, look, you're going to die unless I get you out of here, but I'm only going to get you out of here if you serve me doing things I'm not going to really lay out for you for a length of time I'm not really going to make clear. <laughs> then I snuck in one sentence, just one sentence being like, oh, another arc would be the uh, arc of Vo's physical degeneration. Okay, sure, Oliver, that's easy. <laughs> we'll toss that in. Why not? The reason I say that's easy is because, well, it's just someone's body falling apart. Do a little bit of research, put in some painful moments where it makes the most sense in terms of ratcheting up the tension of the whole thing. La-di-da. Nothing, as far as I'm concerned, compared to the emotional journey and all this other stuff I just covered. So then I did a page of just thinking a little harder about what the two sides are of Vo and the patron, and Vo not wanting to serve, and the patron being like, yeah, but you're gonna die, so maybe serve. And I was off to the races. The big last final part. The order of events. Okay, I've told you how I got here, now let's see if the result is worth it. Sequence of events. Right up front, I was like, you know what, no exposition dumps or flashbacks on how Vo got here. Only tell what I absolutely must, infer as much as possible. Now, in this outline I'm still going to be telling a lot of stuff, because I'm telling future Oliver how to write the dang thing. I imagine it will be expressed in a way that has far less explicitly laid out in the actual text. So, 1. Set the scene. 
the doppelganger of Vo, which I imagine is being even someone from her army that was frequently used as her kind of like, oh, I'm over here on this side of the battlefield, you know, give her a red wig kind of thing just to mislead the enemy. I thought that's pretty cool. So let's have her in the gibbet across the road, the King's Road, leading up to the kingdom, which is why this road has enough traffic that we can have three encounters in relatively short order, I'm going to say. Doppelvo, as I'll call her, dies. Vo, meanwhile, watches this and is like, huh, you know, she's really dehydrated. She literally has red nails, a little reference to the story there, because she has been picking at the edge of where an actual, like, rusty red nail is jutting just a tiny bit out from the gibbet. It seems like the beginning of, of you know, fraying the whole situation so that she could actually maybe get out. And mentally, she's feeling pretty strong and independent still, despite the fact that she's been here for a few days and feels pretty rough. Two, we're going to have the very beginning of Vo and the patron. This part, part one, is Vo out of her mind. <laughs> is there perhaps a, a rat-like animal I can have come along? Is it offering itself to her? It sort of comes along near the bottom of the cage, near almost where she can reach, you know, and Maybe Vo reaches down and she strokes it with her fingertip, just strokes the back of its head just a little bit, moving it closer so it can lean into the stroke. It's like, ooh, thank you, you know? And then Vo snatches it up and bites the head off and squeezes its blood into her mouth like slamming an energy drink. <laughs> Gotta have it. I like it. All right. Vo now is hydrated. <laughs> Fingernails are still rough. And mentally, did this dead thing after I bit its head off, etc. Did it squeak? Did it make a sound? No time to think about that, because we have part three, visitor number one, the past lover. Reminder, they are going to be new to the reader, but obviously not new to Vo, who isn't even bothered to be seen by this past lover with the dead rat or rat thing in her hand and blood all over her mouth. I wonder how much I can do in this scene without dialogue. So then I made a few quick notes. I was like, okay, uh, Vo should try to use kindness to lure him in close this time to take his dagger or anything else she can get her hands on to help her work out more of the nails. She fails, and his reaction perhaps tells us something of their relationship. Either he's shocked and she was kinder, or perhaps, you know, when they were together, or perhaps he's not surprised, which actually might line up a little more with how Vo is in the late stage of this part of the book, totally centered on herself and her needs. I know I want to tie this back into the thematic statement. I want to get in some kind of dialogue about you've changed, how you see me has changed. You know, I'm doing fine. I'm fine. You know, she's saying, like, even though she's in the gibbet, you know, I'm doing okay. It's my situation that needs improving. And in the end, I kind of like, you know, maybe he leaves her a flower and it's kind of like a lover, but it's also really like he's at a grave. This is perhaps where doubt about her, you know, perfected stasis, you know, of starts to creep in with Vo. And then she sets back to work on pulling out another, maybe she's already onto another one, nail from the gibbet, just ruining her nails, you know, she's kind of like, oh, fingernails grow back, uh, whatever. Part four, patron, part two. It's not a ghost mouse, you know. <laughs> she hears the words in her head. If you'd been to serve the king who captured her, you wouldn't be in here. He didn't care about what you'd done, only that you hadn't been doing it for him, harming his enemies. And so we have Vo wrestle with the question of who exactly said that, keeping in mind that Vo is of a superstitious time where she has had some encounters in past adventures that uh, odd entities have 
spoken into her mind before. In fact, I realized when I wrote this, oh, I gotta be careful not to go to that well too often in earlier tales. I may tweak some stuff to be a little different than a disembodied voice. So, you know, perhaps Vo prays. We can get a little bit of her religion in here, her belief in the big gardener god that I've mentioned a few times before. How does she pray? Hands together? We'll have a think about it. In fact, I probably have already answered that question in a previous story. I like the idea of her chanting, half delirious, cries of religious ecstasy mixed with yelps of pain as she sacrifices most of her fingernails to remove four more actual, like, iron nails from the gibbet, enough to perhaps make its wooden or steel, we're not sure yet, bottom start to come loose as she just starts stamping and stamping and stamping and chanting and praying and chanting and stamping. You know, vultures perhaps meanwhile across the road, setting to tearing apart her duplicate, so to speak, the doppelvo. Eyes wild, teeth bared, what little sweat her body has left to offer runs in the rifts of sun-cracked skin on Vo's back. Listen to me, the patron voice goes, but Vo is in too much of a fervor. The, listen, I'm going to have to come up with a name for it later, Berserker State, let's say. She'd been taught at a young age to work herself into before raiding the other side of the island is just too intense. And then the floor begins to give. Vo's vision begins to spin, whether she's throwing her head around or not. She gibbers semi-coherent nonsense, you know, the prisons of man I shall not heed. Like a glorious plant, I shall burst from the shell of my seed. What does that mean? Who cares? It's giving her juice to keep going. Much blood and effort later, she squeezes out through a gap between the bottom and the rest of the bars to walk ten feet and pass out. Last thing she hears is that voice in the head. Uh, last thing she hears is that voice in her head, explicitly stating, "I am not your god." Part five, quote unquote, mom, aka the blacksmith, visitor number two. So yes, Vo has had a classic pulp magazine blackout, leading us into a new scene. Perhaps before she becomes fully aware, she has memories of her mother hearing the sound of a hammer on metal, the sound of childhood, or her mom, you know. Her vision returns. Vo is bleeding, badly scraped by the gibbet as she was presumably shoved back in by the stout, muscular woman who's definitely not her mom. I mean, aside from the fact the mom's dead, I imagine this is taking place somewhere in kind of uh, whatever my fantasy world's called, the equivalent of, like, southern China, maybe maybe even actually further south, you know, maybe we'll get into some Thai stuff. I, I don't know, I haven't decided yet, to be honest. It's just not the number one thing for this particular tale, set as it is in such an isolated spot. But anyway, Not Mom has just finished hammering the last nail back in. I thought maybe we could have Vo quote-unquote embrace quote-unquote mother through the bars, their ensuing struggle, a cruel parody of Vo's memory of her actual mother's hugs. Weakened as she is, it's over soon. Vo getting a finger broken, I think. And the blacksmith backs off out of reach. At which point Vo just bellows, you know, how could you put me back in? The blacksmith gestures to her cart and horse, you know, her mobile workshop. Lots of work for a smith in town right now. Many soldiers need new shields, armor, and weapons after a battle with some pale warlord. Ha! Vo brought this her way. <laughs> But also this reveals that the blacksmith doesn't even know who the hell Vo is. And Vo comments, perhaps, you know, you don't even know who I am and you did it, you know, and then the blacksmith's like, nobody is putting these things without good reason. Vo is like, but people are putting these for insulting the king. 
blacksmith, is that all you did, warlord? Because, you know, she's figured it out now. Insult the king? Those quiet. And then the blacksmith thinks for a second, not so pale. Because Vo is burnt and leathery from being out in the sun so many days. And Vo comments, you know, yeah, I've been in this goddamn thing for like three days or however long it's going to be exactly. And I like the finishing line of the segment being the blacksmith just kind of going, hmm, not fully cooked yet. <laughs> Begins to, you know, head back to her cart, you know, perhaps giving a glare of motherly disapproval, perhaps mirroring what Vo saw while blacked out before waking up to the reality of the situation. And so Vo cries out curses to crack a canyon wider, as I wrote in my notes here, whatever that means. She, you know, curses up a storm, basically, as quote-unquote mom rides off slowly, the very horses seeming to sneer at Vo, before Vo slumps back in the gibbet to look at her ruined hands and just dry heave cries, basically. <laughs> On we go into part six, Patron Negotiations Part 3, where the negotiations truly begin, and if I deploy Howardian philosophy anywhere, I think it's going to be here, because Vo is actually being pretty much through a good chunk of the ringer at this point, and I can see how that and being willing to argue and negotiate whatever the voice in her head could lead to some philosophizing about what the real thing is in life. But first, Vo escapes into the unreal, or at least the memories that she has, from this terrible situation, escapes into memories of wealth, wonder, and weirdness from her recent Vonan years, and looks at her current circumstances. And so we get a little dialogue in her head, perhaps, along the lines of the patron coming in with, and so the bill has come due. I was like, are you in my mind? Patron's like, yes, but don't worry, I cannot manipulate it directly. Your decisions are your own. Have we met before? Vo asks, a question that I think is fair given her past experiences, but also a little, you know, is this continuity, you know, being addressed for the reader? Is this the voice that she heard in her head in Disgrace the Stone? No, though a friend did recommend I keep an eye on you. I'm thinking that's vague enough that if people want to have a bit of fun and go, hmm, I bet this is continuity, I bet their friend is the voice from, you know, the other story, then cool, but also it doesn't actually require having read the other story to get a little kick out of it and wonder who the friend is. Anyway... Serve me, <laughs> right? The demand is made. Vo says, well, I serve only myself. You know, the promise of I can release you, you know, is made. Vo's like, yeah, release me into bondage. I will not be your slave. I'm already in my, you know, final form. My appetites may grow, but at heart, I am perfected. And maybe I'll expand upon this when I actually write it proper, you know, some sort of I'm a warrior, a reaver, you know, whatever speech kind of about her nature. And that could definitely be where I deploy Howardian philosophy. And so counter to the, you know, I've perfected myself. I'm in a great place of stasis over here. Don't bug me, idiot. You know, thing that Vo says, the patron's like, well, actually, continuous change is all there is. Perfection is an illusion. Resolution is an illusion, at best a way station to further resolution. You may as well take a hand in shaping the continuous process that is Vo, or others will do it for you. Vo looks at the cage she's twice been shut in, and says, You wouldn't have approached me while I was feasting on the spoils of my gracious victory, would you? Silence. This service I perform, these tasks you wish me to perform... They're the kind only a condemned person would choose to do, aren't they? Fo asks. Patron replies, even then, many have said no. Fo looks down at her ruined hand. And again, I make a note, you know, deploy Howardian philosophy here? <laughs> Just to make sure to weigh my own feelings on the matter. 
perhaps stringing those speech out of what I agree with, re Howard philosophy and my own thoughts. And I definitely want to evoke him, not copy him. I'm, I'm making this big note here in the, you know, the order of events to remind myself. I really do feel, by the way, in terms of deciding what you write in the outlining and what you write in the story, personal tastes, of course, but this feels like real prose here. Like I kind of know the purpose of the Howardian philosophy I want to come out of O's mouth. To actually write out proper, I may as well just write the whole story it feels like at this point. Plus, I think it will be better if I let this sit until like, who knows, how many months from now, that I actually get into writing the first draft of the story. I think this is something that will benefit from sitting and me writing the whole book and having a better idea than looking back over the whole picture, pardon me, outlining the whole book, to then think, okay, what do I need here? So this comes back to some of what I was saying at the beginning of the episode about deciding how much there is there and when there is enough there to be okay moving on. Anyway, the patron begins to argue with the philosophizing, but then, demon god or madness, be quiet. Have a welcome visitor, Vo says. Part 7, third and final visitor, the old enemy, who is not the person who got Vo, let's not forget, that was the king. So first up, naturally, we want to quickly establish that they hate Vo. All kinds of fun ways I can do that. Then Vo's like, but you're not glad to see me in this, the gibbet. No, they aren't. They wanted Vo on the end of their pike. You seem listless, Vo says. And then they're like, yes, damn it. You know, they're reluctant to admit it at first, but they admit a loss of purpose since Vo was captured. A long show trial perhaps was stretched out over the course of a month, giving some time for events to change for other people than Vo. They admit how because someone else captured Vo, they lost prestige and position. And Vo responds with some very outline level of explicit dialogue with, It was a fine cycle in which we circled each other, wasn't it? I gave you purpose and prominence, you gave me supplies and treasure, and the resources your army required that I so often raided. I couldn't say who was the blade and who was the whetstone, but we kept each other sharp. The old enemy is like, who knows how many years we might have had you know, if, the, if this king hadn't gotten in the way. Yeah, I kind of like them, the, the idea of them both simultaneously cursing the king who captured Vo, though Vo has to only dry spit further getting across how dehydrated she is. And then she's like, you could free me, you know. And then the enemy's like, from this mortal coil, <laughs> they draw a sword or pike or whatever. And then Vo's like, oh, a quick death? Another gift you bring me. They pause. Or free me, Vo says. What do you want? And now I like this because now Vo is giving somebody else a choice rather than the one that she's facing with the patron. And also taunting the enemy like this means that he'll probably not kill her, right? Because if that's what she wants, a quick death, oh geez, you know. So they stammer and they stomp the, the old enemy. I want, uh, I want, uh, uh, you know, what do I want? They curse and they wander off in the opposite direction. Not too far, but far enough that maybe Vo could talk to a voice in her head and not be heard. Oh, hey, I just spotted a note in the margin. I like the idea of originally the old enemy inspecting Doppelvo's cage and Vo being like, aha, she fooled you once more, even in death. <laughs> anyway, yes. So, part eight, the climax, the final negotiation and the incantation. The voice points out fairly, if he kills you, if you die instead of serve, then you die for your belief of never serving and cease to be around to believe it. Vo dodges this a little bit by just asking, why me? You know, the old enemy pacing out of earshot. Why do you care if I believe in, even serve a continuing process? Why not fool me, appear as my goddess, who I'd serve in a heartbeat? Pacing, kicking the earth, the old enemy continues. 
Patron's like, lies waste time. Bo responds, yours is finite. Uh, so maybe this is not an immortal she's dealing with. Patron ignores her and just says, to put you on the path to belief is enough. You'll serve me better besides if you come around while on the path I set. Why me, Vo repeats. The old enemy, meanwhile, begins to pace back toward the gibbet. Vo bears her heart to him. Seeing death is what she seems to want. They stop, conflicted again. Vo grins. Answer, Vo says to the patron. You've no leverage, says the patron. Something I kind of realized, by the way, when I was doing that page of like, what's, uh, you know, each party got to offer the other one here <laughs> before I went into this uh, series of, you know, events. You want me, Vo says. Patron's like, you want to live. You want to see it all. You'll see even more in my service. Doing what? Vo responds. The old enemy shakes their head and just goes, damn you, I know my own mind. Weapon drawn, I'm thinking increasingly a pike of some kind, or a very long sword. The old enemy charges, at which point the patron takes this bit of leverage the old enemy is giving them and just says, the incantation takes time. Incantation? I was like, what? You know, just all she had to do was say yes. <laughs> Repeat after me, the patron says. And so... Vo chants the incantation as old enemy charges. Then Vo basically has to play one-handed, because he's got that broken finger, right? One-handed monkey bars to avoid the point of the old enemy's weapon, let's say a pike for now, as she stamps on the haft of the pike, trying to break it. And then old enemy draws a dagger slashing at her, and as he carves meat from her ribs like a turkey dinner, her screams costing precious time, breaking up the incantation, her body losing still more precious blood that oozes like sap. She's so dehydrated. She finishes the incantation just as she breaks the haft of the pike and old enemy drives their blade through the palm of the hand with the broken finger. It takes a moment, patron whispers in her ear without anybody else being able to hear. And I just dropped this in, you know, it's something I've been wanting to put somewhere in the book. And maybe this is right, maybe this is not. But I have Vo say to the old enemy, she's, you know, bleeding out and probably going to die. So maybe the blade goes through her throat instead of her hand, but in a way that she can still speak. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. But she says, you were selfish. What? Old enemy says. So selfish that night among the tall grass. That's how I knew to betray you later before you could betray me, could be greedy and selfish as you'd been amongst the grass. Oh, suggestion of how they became old enemies and that they were lovers at one point and that this guy was, you know, awful in bed. <laughs> and was very selfish and greedy and that's what gave Bo a clue about him going to betray her later. Uh, anyway, I just like that idea of, of sleeping with someone the night before being the clue that lets someone figure out they're going to be betrayed later and using that to get ahead of the game. I just really like that. I just airdropped it in here at the climax of this story. Maybe I won't feel the same way by the time it gets round again to actually writing the draft. Her eyes start to lose focus as she dies. You'll heal me, she mutters to the patron and the confused old enemy. I promise no such thing, the patron replies. Then, in pretty much the same wording as I described Doppelvo's death at the beginning of the tale, I want to describe Vo falling to the bottom of the gibbet, no longer moving. One way or another, she has escaped the gibbet. 
the end question mark so final review feels good to me feels like there's a there there certainly feels like there's enough here for me to understand it fully when i come back to it who knows how much later as opposed to my terrible note <laughs> from a while back deploy howardian philosophy that was too vague i thought i knew what that meant and then later I had to completely rediscover it this does not feel like that I like everything I've got here. I can refine everything else in the vomit draft. I can hope that people will be invested enough in Vogue by three quarters through the book that I can kind of get away with a real, you know, bottle episode. Which, by the way, you ever notice how you don't encounter those ever in like the pilot or the first couple of episodes, right? TV shows like to make sure you really care about the characters before you watch them stuck in a supply closet or a single room for a whole like hour. As far as that ending of the first Xenogenesis book maneuver, I, again, I don't know if I pulled that off, but I can always review this and rewrite it accordingly if I still want to pull that off and feel that I didn't. And so I wrapped up my outlining with those two elements that have been consistent from the very beginning, a page of me looking through, you know, the not conflict things relating finding, losing, etc., types of conflict, and the sword and sorcery checklist based off of Brian Murphy's excellent book, followed by the red ink, you know, mini outline of perspective, tense, trajectory, focus, theme, thematic statement, plot, and story. Yeah, donezo. So now I'm three quarters of the way done outlining the novel. How do I feel? Well, you always hope you get more done more quickly, but I really had hoped I would have been at this point at the end of June instead of like nearly three quarters of the way through August, which is when I'm recording this. Who knows when you're hearing this? I'm still not sure exactly when it will be deployed to use my word of the day. But, you know, life got in the way in a bunch of ways that you don't need to hear me rattle off. And I also got really invested in this idea of launching a magazine. New Edge Sword and Sorcery, huh? Yeah, I am excited for this last quarter of the novel that I'm going into. The big weird as I keep thinking about it. And I'll probably talk to you about a few other sword and sorcery authors, including definitely Michael Moorcock. Check him out if you haven't already. He wrote a lot. <laughs> Mostly a character named Elric. In fact, I'm already reading a book of his called The Eternal Champion that feels very relevant to the stories to come. So, you know, if you want to have a bit of fun reading ahead of the assignment, so to speak, you could run off and check that out. And I'm also excited to finish the Annihilation trilogy, Jeff Vandermeer's books, which are very relevant. Certainly the first one, which I have read to one of the stories I have planned. Okay, I'm not sure as I record this if the next episode will be an interview or something related to New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine, where I will actually lay out what the heck this is for anybody who hasn't been following, like, the blog post I wrote over on Scott Odin's blog and other stuff like that. Let's find out together. So, I'm writing a novel, features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it too, so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>